0: Equally, it would deal with terrorism, I remember saying, but, you know, we didn't have that in Scotland. Oh, my
1: God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God,
2: that is... Oh Jesus Christ. Christ. In. In. He's
3: got a bomb. He's got a bomb.
2: So he drove
3: right into so it. Was and nice a no, hell. This is If it was a nice
1: and why was he fighting the police? He's clothes were oh, it's oh, loaded off. Oh. He's covered the flame and he's trying
4: to attack this police. out The flame's burning his body. He's shouting Allah. He was shouting Allah, he was throwing punches. Allah, Allah. Breaking news this evening, a blazing car has been driven into Glasgow airport this afternoon. A terrorist attack on one of the country's busiest airports. stand proud, and then you come to Glasgow, Glasgow doesn't accept us, do you know what I mean? This is Glasgow, you know, so yeah, we'll set about you, you know, that's it.
5: 10 years ago, two quiet, intelligent men rammed a burning jeep packed with explosives into Glasgow Airport. I'm Chris Mooney, and in a new podcast called Criminal Record, we look back on a summer of terror, find out what happened next, and talk to the heroes who risked their own lives to save thousands of others. In the decades since, the people of Great Britain have been made all too aware of the threat that still exists. The extremists may have the same aim, but their game plan has changed. The Glasgow airport bombers were instrumental in this shift of tactics. The end of June marks the start of summer for Scotland's school kids. The first Saturday is the beginning of two months of an exodus from our windswept island home as the hordes escape the unpredictable Scottish summer. Family and friends fly off in their tens of thousands for the promise of a fortnight in the otherwise elusive sun. Glasgow International Airport, a gateway to the world for 9.4 million passengers every year, is packed to the gunwales on this busiest of weekends. A throng of noisy, harassed and excited holidaymakers desperate to be there, tolerating the getting there as best they can. The airport is much like any other, smaller than Edinburgh and about 10 miles west of Glasgow city centre. It's becoming increasingly popular, the numbers using it growing year on year. It's full of shops, pubs, and restaurants, a hive of activity every day, but especially on this day. Saturday, the 30th of June 2007, was no different to any other end of term. Staff and flight crews were already halfway through a day when 35,000 people were expected to take off. At exactly 11 minutes past three in the afternoon, some 4,000 travellers were preparing to board their flights. No one, not the security services at GCHQ, not the police, and certainly not the carefree holidaymakers, could have expected what was about to happen. No one, that is, except the bombers. They knew exactly what was coming next. I'm Chris Mooney, and this is Criminal Record.
0: call it well. It was the official opening of Parliament that day. Uh, I'd been across with a friend who had had as my guest. I remember chatting with him because I'd been discussing my first few weeks in St Andrew's House. I was explaining that as Justice Secretary I was responsible for police and fire, but also for the uh, emergency room that existed then. It was to deal with civil incidents, pestilence, f- flu epidemics. Equally, it would deal with terrorism, I remember saying, but, you know, we didn't have that in Scotland.
5: That was Kerry McCaskill, Scotland's Justice Secretary that day. Newly promoted to his post, McCaskill had just put his feet under the desk at the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh. His Scottish Nationalist Party had won the election in May with 47 seats, enough to form a minority government for the first time since the country had won devolved powers from the UK government in 1999. His tenure was about to start with a horrifying bang. Already facing up to the idea the job was going to be tough from day one, McCaskill might have been forgiven for throwing in the towel in the first few hours. The former solicitor would spend agonising moments not knowing what had happened 50 miles away in Scotland's biggest city.
0: I got a phone call on the mobile from the First Minister saying, have you seen Sky News, I have to say? Uh, then as now, I didn't have a uh, subscription TV and uh, uh, I wasn't able to advise obviously to get a look and eventually managed to find in some channel that there'd been an incident in Glasgow Airport uh, that clearly was very concerning and threatening. I have to say, yes, it came as a great surprise. It was probably a bad of fire, not just for me, but especially for the First Minister. I remained in the incident room until into the evening uh, on the, the, the Saturday. Uh, the following day, on the Sunday, a government car came and took me and went through to Glasgow to see the locusts to speak with police and I had uh, meetings with officers because there was still a potential threat that there were other gangs out there looking to do similar attacks and I met with officers at Pitt Street as it was then. There was a meeting at uh, the mosque in Glasgow because there was a lot of concern amongst the Islamic community uh, about both where the attack had come from and threats towards them.
5: As the drip feed of news finally filtered through, news agencies cottoned on to the fact this was no accident. Scotland had been targeted by terrorists. McCaskill watched aghast as reports told how two men had rammed a dark green jeep into the airport's departure hall. The Cherokee was laden with gas canisters, petrol bombs and nails designed to inflict mass murder. What followed was a story of monumental bravery, a nation left so searching over why it had become a victim and a battle for justice. In the coming weeks, we will look into exactly what happened that day and the months that followed, how that attack went on to shape our ideas and attitudes towards terrorism in the next decade, and how the killers were inspired by Glasgow and changed their tactics too. We will speak to the people who witnessed it firsthand, to the emergency crews and lawyers who tried to make sense of the carnage and the journalists who covered it day to day. During our research and recording of this podcast, the country was again reminded of the threats we face and not just from Muslim extremists. In three short months in the UK, fanatics claiming to represent a form of radical Islam and inspired by the so-called Islamic State in Iraq and Syria had killed and maimed indiscriminately on our streets. Since March 2017, 36 innocent people have been killed in separate attacks in London and Manchester. The latest attack happened in London's Finsbury Park, except this time the copycat terrorist was a white, non Muslim man. 47 year old Darren Osborne has since appeared in court charged with terrorism related murder and attempted murder by driving a hire van into a crowd of people leaving a mosque killing 51-year-old Makram Ali. The security services have foiled 13 terror plots linked to or inspired by Islamist extremists between June 2013 and March 2017. But they haven't been able to stop them all. Five people died and 50 were injured when 52-year-old Khalid Massoud drove a car into pedestrians on the pavement along the south side of Westminster Bridge in March Since then, five further terrorist plots have been stopped in their tracks thanks to intelligence operations. But two months later, 22-year-old Salman Ramadan Abidi detonated a homemade bomb packed with shrapnel at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester Arena, killing 22 people, the youngest aged just eight years old. Four days later, the Prime Minister announced the UK's threat level was raised to critical the highest possible. The last time the critical threat level was declared was in June 2007, when two crazed men drove a burning car into Glasgow Airport's main terminal. Inside the terminal building, the scene was apocalyptic. A deafening smash, a blinding flash of bright white light followed by a fireball, billowing white acrid smoke and... silence. Then all hell broke loose. Screaming passengers ran in all directions. Parents tried to shelter their children in case of another more deadly blast. Miraculously, not one passenger was killed more by fluke than design, but more of that later.
2: I was heading out towards the middle door and literally it was a massive explosion. It was just like it was like a bomb um, explosion and everyone, it was absolutely mocked. It was the back of three, as I say, the, you know, the, the place was heaving, it was a slightly different layout and all of a sudden within about 10 seconds, it was just like, It was like backblast, it was like balls of kind of grey-white smoke, just in walls
5: coming towards us. That was beauty sales manager Gillian O'Hara. She had just finished her shift at the airport's duty-free. As panic set in, the mayhem left, Gillian crushed under the weight of the crowd, desperately trying to get out. The beautician was left with a Timberland bootmark on her face, her teeth knocked out. In a call with O'Hara, she describes the chaos.
2: Literally, within five to ten seconds, the place was absolutely covered in smoke. So what happened is, the, plate, the bomb, like it was like a bomb had just went off, but the explosion had happened. Everyone started screaming, but within seconds, I just put my hands on my head and literally fell to my knees, thinking, I just thought it was a ball of fire just coming towards us, um, and sat there for like ten seconds. And then, can I stood up? And when I stood up, it was just complete smoke everywhere. And by that point, everyone else was start screaming, and people the cases had just been left absolutely everywhere. People were jump, jumping over cases to try and get out, and I was like, "Oh my god, what has just actually happened there?" There was people lying on the floor still. There was people helping people up, an older gentleman, and a suit like a businessman holding up. A young, a young kid. Because by this point, this wee girl was just standing, screaming on her own, and it was just holding the m- above her head, his head, so somebody could see her. Because it's still really, it's like dusty fog, you know, really, really bad. At the time, everyone had all got to the door, and everyone just burst out. Everyone was all grabbing their phones and going absolutely crazy, and just honest to god, it was a bit of a mad panic. Everyone was trying to get everyone over, so we were climbing over cases but. People were falling, people were standing over people, and I was like, this is an absolute, this is a disaster.
5: Despite being trampled in the rush to escape, Joey made it out and even managed to shoot video footage on her phone of the burning vehicle. Footage which would fill the airwaves of every news channel.
2: I had videoed it for maybe 10, 15 seconds and then started running inside. It was absolute mayhem. I did kind of hesitate and literally fell over. And as I fell over... People were just running over the top of me, literally. And when I got to the hospital, I had like a Timberland boot on my side of my face and my, my teeth were all broke.
5: Eyewitnesses told how the innocuous looking Jeep would suddenly start swerving. So much so that people recalled shouting at the driver to stop being stupid. The Jeep then turned sharply and careened into the departure lounge. Narrowly missing a young girl on the pavement as it smashed into the front doors of the airport building at 30 hour, A concrete stanchion stopped the attack in its tracks. Margaret Hughes had just arrived to pick up her dad, who was returning from a trip to Benidorm. Like so many that day, the 50-year-old university lecturer at first thought the crash was an accident, the driver maybe having had a heart attack, but she soon realised the full extent of what she was watching. Here she is speaking to us about what she remembers from that day.
1: So I came round the front of the the car park just at the point where the car is driving into the front of the building and sort of I stopped and people had just stopped and my immediate reaction was, oh my God, somebody's had a heart attack or had a stroke and they've crashed their car. And I says to this woman next to me, gosh, what's just happened? She's like, that guy's just driven that car into the door. And I can see the green Jeep and I can see the guy getting out. It was just, it was actually disbelief. People just couldn't believe what was happening. But I remember, I mean, the real feeling was sort of a it was. This is an accident. For I didn't for one minute think somebody'd done this deliberately, or that it was a potential terrorist attack. You, you just you you just don't think something like that's going to happen at Glasgow Airport on a Saturday afternoon in June.
5: The jeep didn't make it all the way into the building, smashing into the automatic sliding doors, glass and masonry falling all around. The driver wasn't about to give up though despite the vehicle being held back by a fallen road sign and that concrete window frame, revving the accelerator until the wheel spun up, burning rubber. As the dust settled, those two shocked to move stared in disbelief as a tall man, described as Asian and over six feet tall, emerged from the driver's side of the jeep. Dressed in a boiler suit and wearing plastic bags on his feet, witnesses said they saw him empty gas over himself, And the burning jeep. The horror was compounded for onlookers as the flames didn't seem to face him. He was a man, fully ablaze, flames licking his body from head to foot, but he was completely calm. So calm it was as if he was superhuman. By now the burning bomber's skin and clothes were melting from his body, but he strolled to the back of the vehicle tried to open the boot, as his passenger headed for the terminal building in a bid to carry through his death wish. Fearing he was about to detonate a bomb, passengers fled in panic. Scott McEwan, a 20-year-old working at the airport's Garfunkel's restaurant at the time, gave a very graphic account to the now-defunct News of the World newspaper. His description of events was worth hearing, so we've asked an actor to read it out.
1: There were flames coming from his arms, legs, and hair, and even his face seemed to be burning. But he was totally dead calm. It was amazing how calm he appeared. He just walked around to the back of the Jeep and was trying to open the boot. People were shouting and screaming, He's got a bomb! He's got a bomb! Flames were licking off the guy's clothes. He was wearing the shirt and trousers, and they were on fire. But it was either that he wasn't aware of it, that he was burning, or he just didn't care. He was pulling at the boot door, trying to open it. Nobody knew what to do. Then one of the security staff arrived with a fire extinguisher and began trying to put out the fire inside the jeep. I didn't see what happened to the other man in the passenger seat, but the jeep just exploded into a ball of flame. I was absolutely shocked. I didn't know what to do. It was It was terrifying.
5: Dutch tourist Andy Gerritsen, a 50-year-old bank manager from Amsterdam, wrapped his coat around the driver to put out the flames, innocently thinking he had been involved in a simple accident, but he quickly backed off as the bomber threatened him. A lone off-duty policeman tried to intervene, but the burning man just laughed and threw punches at the officer, chanting Allah, Allah with every blow. The other attacker in the passenger seat had a Molotov cocktail, and was readying himself to launch it at the terrified crowds, eventually running into the airport carrying jerry cans full of petrol. Then an even more extraordinary thing happened. Members of the public took up the defence of their airport in an awe-inspiring show of bravery, which undoubtedly saved the lives of countless men, women and children. Bear in mind, these burly men were so intent on killing holidaymakers One unswayed despite being completely cloaked in fire, they were not about to accept failure meekly. Baggage handler John Smeaton, who would go on to receive international fame and the Queen's Gallantry Medal, was on a cigarette break when he was spurred into action. The 31-year-old went to the aid of the police officer who was trying to thwart the attack and a fellow hero, holidaymaker Michael Kerr, who had his teeth knocked out and suffered a broken leg fighting off the terrorists. Michael, 40 at the time, had been packing suitcases in his car boot when he took on the jeep's passenger. Again, miraculously, despite its massive payload, the jeep failed to explode properly. Remarkable pictures of the moment Officer Stuart Ferguson tried to douse the flames with a hose featured on the front page of the Sunday Mail the following day. Smeaton, was catapulted to global stardom after this TV interview, shortly after the event.
4: They can try and come to Britain and they'll try and disrupt us any way they want, but the British people have been under a lot more things than this and we always stand proud. And then you come to Glasgow, Glasgow doesn't accept us, do you know what I mean? This is Glasgow, you know, so we'll set about you, you know,
5: that's it. In another BBC interview, Smeaton would go into a little more detail once again in his own inimitable style. I've seen a jeep
4: um, came round the corner, heard a commotion Came round the corner, seen a jeep crashed into the front of the terminal building, it was on flames. Seen a man get out the passenger side of the vehicle. Um, As a policeman was coming to assist, the man then attacked the policeman. I thought that's not right and I ran over to assist the policeman. Uh, Other members of the public did the same. Uh, one of them injuring themselves as he was actually hit by the attacker um, so I uh, mean, a, a female member of security, I think Mary her name was, it was Mary or Mamie I mean, her pulled the gentleman f- further away from the burning vehicle um, to the side and as we were doing that we seen the man who was covered in f- head to toe, covered in flames, got up and he also tried to attack the police so, oh, Quite an unbelievable thing to actually see happening. Fire, total flames. Even the building started to take light, and there was like flames shooting out the back. It definitely seemed like there was gas or you know venting of some sort. It definitely wasn't it wasn't fuel, but it was definitely venting like a gas, like, gas coming out of a gas cylinder. You know anyone that's thrown a a lit can of deodorant on a bonfire will know exactly when the thing gets hot and it pierces it makes that that noise well, that's exactly just that except in a bigger bigger version you could see you could see it the way they, they came out the aggression it was it was just that policeman's getting it you know you could see he was going straight for the policeman you know and the policeman's hardly even he's running up to assist and the policeman's that you know getting attacked you know the guys just started throwing punches and like myself and the other members of the public have just gone to try and assist the policeman I'm through my mind was has got to go and help the policeman you know no letting these guys get away with us you know you know, score, you know, to go and get this sorted, you know.
5: It was quickly becoming apparent that picking Glasgow Airport was one of a catalogue of mistakes made by the terrorists. Taxi driver Alex McElveen had just dropped off a passenger when the jeep rammed into the terminal building. He could have driven off, most would have, but McElveen was made of sterner stuff. He jumped out of his cab and ran towards the obvious threat launching an assault on the Muslim extremists. He ran straight to the Burning Man, kicking him so hard on the privates, he broke a tendon in his foot. Any normal person would have folded, but not this brute of a guy. McIlveen was left unfounded when the Burning Suicide Bomber didn't even flinch. Here's McIlveen talking to us about his memories of the attacker. These are big guys, you know what I mean?
6: and uh, They remember it as well, they are still full Morphine, that wouldn't they? So, uh, whatever we hurt them with, they, uh, they didn't feel it.
5: And they did, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you hurt them, they didn't feel it. Did you catch that? This explained everything. The driver and his fellow fanatic had prepared for an extremist's death without having to feel it. This would explain why the bombers seemed so relaxed about their campaign of terror. As McElveen found it firsthand, they had injected themselves full of morphine to dull the pain. But morphine can only do so much. The driver was flagging by this time, collapsing as he stumbled towards the shattered airport entrance. His accomplice had been wrestled to the ground and shackled with the help of Smeaton and company.
6: uh, If these two guys only stopped, we don't know what they were. The boot of the car? I mean, that boot of the car was full of gas canisters and, and that, you know? 'Cause you need to remember that was was it the uh busiest day of the whole year, I think, so it was. It was the summertime, So, you I mean there was thousands of people there. So it's gone on holiday and coming back. you know, so if they'd have really set that place off then it uh, would have been a disaster. So, I mean obviously everybody that that done something, uh, they knew fine well that they'd done something right you know so, so god hopefully it doesn't happen again you know hopefully disney we're all surprised that it's still on facebook and social media and people still bring it up lucky enough nobody was killed you know uh, so which is good. So that's good
5: hopefully it'll never happen again you know so that's that's what it is Stephen Clarkson, Michael Kerr, Henry Lambie, Michael MacDonald and Alex McElveen were all recognised along with Sergeant Torkel Campbell and PC Stuart Ferguson for foiling the extremists. We'll hear more from the heroes in future episodes. What the heroes of that day didn't know was that the security services were already aware of the terrorist threat and were hot on the tail of the two airport bombers. As the pair spent hours finalising their preparations at a secluded spot on the east banks of Loch Lomond, 30 miles outside Glasgow, the spooks were frantically trying to track them down. Reports at the time suggested the pair had rented a £150 a night chalet in the remote rural community of Rowardenen. This was never produced in evidence during the subsequent trial. What we do know is that they were definitely in the area mainly because it was considered a mobile phone dead zone. They were doing their utmost to make it harder for police to track their movements. The plotters were well aware that the intelligence services were using all their technological know-how to hone in on their whereabouts. To understand why, we need to backtrack a little to just 24 hours before when MI5 were made aware of a real and imminent threat 400 miles away in London. Ambulance crews who were giving first aid to someone in the street in the heart of London around 1.25am on the Friday noticed something unusual. The paramedics noticed smoke coming from a nearby green Mercedes parked outside the famous Tiger Tiger nightclub in Haymarket. What they saw was probably fumes coming off the petrol cans inside. The suspicious car was parked at an angle outside the club with all four doors open and its headlights on. No one was inside. Around 500 people were inside the club, with hundreds more milling about outside. Just an hour later, a second Mercedes, this time a blue 280E model, is ticketed by traffic wardens round the corner from Piccadilly Circus. An hour later, it was towed away to an underground park lane compound where wardens noticed a strange smell coming from the vehicle. Jackie Smith who had just become Britain's first female Home Secretary hours before, woke up to chair her first COBRA meeting. Here's what she remembers.
3: The first day afternoon I was doing the sort of traditional ministerial induction, you know, here's a great big folder minister and let us tell you uh, how it all works, etc. And sort of meeting people. And I had met um, the... Uh, some of the people in the department who were responsible for counter-terror because one of the first things, of course, they need to do is is to sort of um, inculcate you with uh, some of the security stuff that you're going to need to be doing, the warrants and things like that. But really, I hadn't got into the detail of counter-terror at that point. And then I went home that evening, went to bed. Very early the next uh, morning, got a phone call, from my private secretary, who I'd only met the day before, so that was less than 24 hours, who said, um, there's been an incident in uh, Haymarket, um, vehicle um, packed with explosives, etc. Um, and uh, I said, right, uh, so this is serious, is it? And he said, uh, yes, yes, Home Secretary, this is serious. So I said, right, OK, I'm on the way, so a quick shower, and uh, off I went.
5: By first light... Police trawling CCTV of the area in the lead-up to the first car being dumped linked the second car too with a possible attack. Traffic wardens at Park Lane were evacuated and the car was searched by bomb disposal experts and found to contain the same potentially destructive cache of petrol and nails as the first. It was clear Britain was under attack and the race was on to trace those responsible.
3: They brought in to see me one of the officials in the Office for Security and Counter-Terror as I arrived, and I'll never forget, she said to me, um, I didn't expect to meet you this quickly, Home Secretary, but when I come in the office, you know it's something serious. The, the sort of prevalent feeling that you have is, what what is going on? How can we find out what's happening? Yeah. Who's involved? What... Yeah. What, you know, uh, is this just the beginning of something far larger? Is it, is it terrorism or is it something else? Um, so um, we had all the details, obviously, from the police about what was in the vehicle. And, you know, I sort of, I think I was quite shocked at the idea that um, somebody would put a car with explosives and the ability for, to explode and nails and other things to cause maximum damage where people were just going out to have a night out. And you know, I don't know why I was shocked because of course the, the, there was a record of, of that sort of terrorism that, that was completely heartless in terms of what it, it chose to do. I think when you suddenly realise what, what people are willing to do, it, it's quite sort of shocking.
5: The intelligence services are now up against the clock to uncover and foil any further plots to target innocent civilians, but they now have crucial evidence. Four phones used in the failed London car bombings as detonators produced an Aladdin's cave of evidence. They knew who they were looking for and they had a good idea where they might be heading. The bombers by this time hiding out in their idyllic hole in Scotland, also knew the clock was ticking. The two men had met at 2.48am on Friday and were captured on CCTV checking into room 3 of the Newham Hotel in Forest Gate, East London. The next morning, they took a bus to Stansted where they caught a train to Glasgow. At 8.04am on June 30th, their Jeep Cherokee a spotted park next to famous hiking trail the West Highland Way at Balmaha. Witnesses later claim to have seen them relaxed and drinking coffee in a nearby hotel hours before the attack. With the jeep now packed with explosive materials, they slowly headed towards Glasgow Airport at 2pm. Perhaps feeling the heat made them rush their planned attack on Glasgow Airport. It may explain the blundering way they appear to go about it, but what is certain is that their failed bomb plots in London hadn't put them off their intended killing spree. As the intelligence operation frantically gathered pace, the suspects were soon identified as Kafil Ahmed and Bilal Abdullah. Only, it was too late for Glasgow. To make matters worse, as emergency crews made the battered and broken entrance hall to the airport safe again, the background details of the fanatics began to emerge. Iraqi-born Abdullah and Ahmed from India hadn't spent their lives planning to kill innocent people. Far from it. They were intelligent men who had worked to create and preserve society. Ahmed was an aeronautical engineer. Abdullah, in particular, had dedicated his life up to now to saving lives. He was currently employed by Scotland's National Health Service. He was a doctor. Security services had already been warned that an attack was imminent. Canon Andrew White, known as the Vicar of Baghdad for his services to St George's Church in the Iraqi capital, claims to have given crucial information to police in the April before the attacks. An Al-Qaeda source said his group were planning attacks in the UK. In a chilling message... He told Canon White Those who cure you will kill you. Next time on Criminal Record The crucial mistakes which saved hundreds of lives and the hunt for the terror cell which spawned Abdullah and Ahmed.
2: Criminal Record was produced and edited by Kirsty McKenzie and written and narrated by Chris Mooney of Media Scotland. Special thanks to Paul O'Hare, Andy Phillip, Sally Hind, Jennifer Highland, John Ferguson and Torkel Crichton.